This morning I want to continue our series going through the book of Exodus. Uh, we are looking this morning at chapter 18. And the subject we are speaking from is God's good guidance for governing. God's good guidance for governing. We have just come through an election year in 2020, and there has been a great deal of uncertainty, unrest, uproar, distress, and division over who is or will be governing the United States for the next four years. There are at least two views held by many about this, both of which are completely wrong. First, the view that the Trump-Pence team is better than the Biden-Harris team for America. The second view is that the Biden-Harris team is better than the Trump-Pence team for America. We base our vote on one of these very opinionated points of view. Yet neither Trump-Pence nor Biden-Harris is better or worse as a team for America's progress, perpetuity, prosperity, and liberty. The absolute best team able to ensure America's, and this would be true of any nation, but in this case, America's progress, perpetuity, prosperity, and liberty, the best team is you, the church, in partnership with Jesus Christ for the advancement of his gospel and the progress of his kingdom. No matter who is governing any nation, it's the church in partnership with Jesus Christ that makes the real fundamental differences. Some Christians say things are going to get better. Other Christians say things are going to get worse. But getting worse or getting better is actually determined by you, the church, and your willingness to participate or not participate with Christ in his kingdom mission. It's not determined by the White House, the Capitol building, the courthouse, state house, city hall, or governor's mansion. You could put the most outstanding and upstanding people in government. But if you, the church, if the church is not praying, not repenting, not living for and like Jesus, nothing is going to get better in society. In a similar way, you could put the most immoral 
and reprehensible people in government. But if the church is praying, is repenting, is living for and like Jesus, nothing is going to stop the gospel's progress and its positive, transforming impact in that society. A third thing that has captured many of us um, due to the past difficulties in 2020, uh, many have, have, have bought the very subtle and very naive view that 2021, a new year, enables you to magically move on from 2020 and put all its ills and difficulties behind you. Haven't you heard people say, I'm so glad 2020 is over. I'm so glad it's all behind us. Or maybe you may have heard yourself saying that. Many believe that because it's now 2021, all of last year's problems will somehow fade away. The old-fashioned time-heals-all-wounds mindset. However, as I'm sure you're aware, there is no moving on from 2020 and all its trauma. There is no healing without the church's careful self-examination, confession of sin, genuine repentance, and renewed obedient response to God's grace in Christ. A renewed commitment of the church to the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom at work in you personally, among the church corporately, and through the church into society is the only thing that will give us grace to move on. A society can never rise higher than the church within that society. Until the church repents, and shines with good works, the country, the nation, the world in which it exists, will never, ever get any better. You, the church, are the instrument through which America, or any nation for that matter, either will or will not experience progress, perpetuity, prosperity, and liberty. It's based on whether you either choose or refuse to partner with Jesus Christ in his mission to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord's glory like the waters cover the sea. Nations rise and nations fall based on what Christ desires to do in and through his church and whether the church commits itself to the mission of Christ in this world. Well, what does this have to do with Exodus 18? I'm glad you asked. Uh, let's read Exodus 18 and see. Exodus chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. It's a little long, but we can get, get through it by God's grace. Jephro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. 
how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jephro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, meaning for Moses said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father has been, was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jephro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other, of their welfare, and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jephro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jephro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jephro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now I want to stop there and talk about these verses, and Lord willing, we'll pick up the other ones in a little bit. Um, the first 12 verses just read of this chapter have to do uh, with hearing and responding to God and His Gospel appropriately. Uh, in the Hebrew, uh, the first word in this chapter is heard, and has everything to do with hearing the Gospel of God. The last word in Hebrew in this first section is God, and has everything to do with fearing the God of the Gospel. Jephro, Moses' father-in-law, is said to have heard what God had done for Moses and Israel. And this is the leading thought in these verses. On this occasion, he seeks to reunite Moses with his wife and children, uh, whose names, uh, interestingly, also recount the goodness of God. Prior to Moses uh, going back to Egypt, you remember he ran away, when Pharaoh was out to kill him. And then uh, prior to him going back, he had children. And he actually named them Gershom and Eliezer. And their, their names mean, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and uh, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. These children were named to give glory to God and his gospel. Egypt was not the promised land. 
And the Lord delivered Moses and Israel from every threat to the promise of living with the Lord in his land, under his hand, for his glory. And Moses uh, was assured of that prior to going to Egypt and was confirmed in those realities after he came out of Egypt. And when Moses heard that his father-in-law came, uh, like Moses, he humbly goes out to greet him. Now, you would think if, maybe if you were Moses or I were Moses, I mean, I've, you know, I've met with God. You know, I've, I've bowed down before the burning bush. I've seen the Red Sea open. You need to come to me, pal. I'm the lawgiver here. But Moses is, is a humble man. And he humbly comes out, bows down to his father-in-law. And the Bible says that when he greets him, he, they go in the tent and he tells him the gospel. So Jephro heard about it, but now Moses is telling him about it. And uh, he speaks of God's judgment against Pharaoh and the Egyptians and God's salvation and preservation of Israel. You know, it's one thing to hear... Uh, about what, what, some, what, what God did. And it's quite another thing to hear it from someone who's actually been through it. I mean, when you got saved, you were an eyewitness of the event. You were in the room when Jesus saved you. He's the one who delivered you, and you were there at the time, obviously, and so hearing about you getting converted and hearing you tell the story of how you got converted are two very different things. Um, and so Moses tells this story. And, and Jephro's response is to rejoice in the Lord, to bless the Lord, to worship him, and to acknowledge the Lord. He goes from the beginning of this chapter from hearing what the Lord did to, to being, being able to say, now I know that the Lord is the greatest. Um, and then he consecrates himself to the Lord. He, he offers a burnt offering and uh, sacrifices, and he has fellowship with God's people before the Lord. Now, when you think about this, isn't this the response you long to see in people when you tell them how the Lord has delivered you from sin, Satan, condemnation, and saved you in Christ Jesus. It is worth mentioning this, that this is the type of response you and I should be longing to see when we share our testimony with, with other people. Now, there's one other thing that's worth mentioning here. Um, Jephro saw this God and his gospel reflected in the life of Moses long before this particular meeting. It was Moses whom God used to save Jephro's daughters from the cruel shepherds, you know the story, who drove them away from the well. Moses was the one who then dwelt with Jephro and his family and committed himself to Zipporah in marriage. And this is what the Lord did with you as well. He rescued you, committed himself to you as your husband, 
and was content to dwell with you and to dwell in you. Needless to say, the message of the gospel becomes far more compelling on your lips when people can see its power influencing your life and the reflection of Christ's character in your daily demeanor, decisions, and dedication to him. Speaking of this gospel, this gospel of Jesus Christ demands a worthy response. Moses has just recounted this gospel of God bringing his people out of bondage. And that kind of message deserves a worthwhile, a worthy response, a worthy walk. How can, how can we be lukewarm or nonchalant about being saved by the blood of Jesus Christ? How can you stay indifferent to God when He loves you and saves you? Can you really be unresponsive to serving Christ Jesus when you truly see how He has laid down His life and taken it up again for God's glory and for your good? You know, you can't see, you know, speaking of Moses, you, you simply cannot see an unconsumed burning bush and just keep walking. How much more out of place would it be for you to experience true forgiveness and God's indwelling presence and at the very moment of experiencing these blessings go online to see what today's deals and sales are on Amazon.com. Nothing you purchase compares to being purchased by Jesus' blood. And we see this sort of response, this worthy response, being played out in the remainder of this chapter. Let's look at verses 13 through 27. The next day, Moses set to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe. 
and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Verses 13 through 27 recount the day after Jephro's commitment to the Lord. He observes, as we read, Moses asking God for guidance and wisdom to govern and judge the Israelites as they stand around him all day and into the night in order that he can settle their disputes and teach them how to live harmoniously with one another and what the Lord wanted them to do. Moses is their intercessor, their guide, their governor, their justice system. He's the jack-of-all-trades, so to speak. At one level, this is good. People who have been redeemed by God's grace should want to know how to live and walk worthy of the salvation they have just experienced. Don't you want to know how to walk worthy of the gospel? Don't you want to know how and what you ought to be doing in response to what God has done in Christ? Well, these people were seeking it all day, all night. They wanted to know how to live among one another, how to settle these disputes, how to get along, how to love one another in this particular corporate body. That's the way the church ought to be. We ought to be seeking how to live harmoniously, in unity, in love, in community. However, Jephro immediately sees a problem, and he does not hesitate to tell Moses. It's funny, it's sort of funny, because, you know, the, the monumental character that Moses is in the Bible, and you, you picture this, this old guy coming up and saying, hey, this isn't right, man, you know, you need to straighten this out. And, but Moses, again, Moses is humble, and he listens and takes advice from, from a man who just got saved, basically. Jephro tells Moses, uh, you know, he highlights the fact that, that Moses is alone in his work. In the previous chapter, you may recall, in chapter 17 of, of Exodus, Moses held up God's staff while the Israelites were fighting the Amalekites, but his hands grew weary. It, it literally says they grew heavy. And the same word is used here regarding the work of governing God's people. Jephro says in verse 18, the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. 
Moses couldn't hold the staff up alone. He can't govern and rule alone. Moses humbly hears his father-in-law's advice and assurance, and this is important, that God would be with him. Um, I'm quite sure that Jephro's ability to instruct Moses was twofold. First of all, he is now um, uh, committed to the Lord, and the Lord was working in his life already in powerful ways. Um, that's clear. And he was working in him to, to instruct and lead this leader of the nation, Moses. Second, uh, Jephro had seven daughters. And any man with seven daughters to raise has, by definition and of necessity, learned a whole lot about time management. I'm sure his daughters were on the phone all the time, and in the bathroom all the time. You've got to learn how to manage your time and navigate with seven daughters, not to mention his wife. Jephro tells Moses and tells you and me by extension five things necessary for a more effective and fulfilling ministry that would build a community poised to impact your country, other nations, and the world for God's gospel and kingdom in Christ. First, recognize you can't do ministry alone. It's way too heavy for you as an individual, and oftentimes smaller churches want to do things and they just can't do them. It's just too heavy. It's not enough hands on deck. And it's often wise to partner with larger congregations to do work if the Lord really has laid it upon your heart. Only Jesus can work alone. He's the only one who can bear the heavy load. And even he chose to work in partnership and in concert with you. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But he chose to privilege us with partnership. Only Jesus can bear the heavy load of your sins and the heavy load of service and ministry. And yet, he calls us to partner with him. Uh, it's a privilege. And notice Jephro's assurance. The assurance that he gives to Moses, the hope he gives to Moses, in verse 18, he says, God be with you. Do you know that God is with you? Emmanuel. That's one of Jesus' name, names. And he promises, does he not, that in his commission to make disciples of all nations, he promises, I'll be with you. Behold, I'll be with you always, he says. Jesus is with you for the purpose of helping you make disciples. You can't do ministry alone. Jesus is with you. You don't have to do it alone. And at the same time, he calls you to partner with others in the body of Christ to do the work of the kingdom. Second, 
Moses was told to represent the Israelites before God and to bring their cases to God in order to be a more effective, fulfilled community, therefore, living in harmony and poised to impact other nations, you must continue your commitment to God in prayer, to pray for the church, to live in love, to live in unity, to live in harmony. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Father, make them one so the world might know that you have sent your Son. Not just in your local fellowships, but in the church and the world. It's obvious it's, it should take place in the local, local assembly that you attend, but it should also, you should, you should be praying for unity in the church in the whole world. And perhaps you may think, well, that's too big of a tall of an order. It's not. Jesus prayed for it. Jesus gets what he prays for. He calls you to pray also. Every church in the world, the church in the world, every local congregation, is called to be united. We are already united in Christ. And we are called to work out that union we already have in the Spirit in the bond of peace as we interact with one another. Particularly, this is true of those who are near you geographically, and you have an opportunity to fellowship with them and serve along with them. Jesus is our great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us. He always represents you before the Father and brings your cases to him. Moreover, the load you bear is never too heavy for him. And so in concert with him, he calls you to pray for one another, to pray for the community that he bought with his blood, to seek God's kingdom, starting with where you are and those near you. Third, Moses was told to warn, make Israel know how to walk and what to do based on God's statutes and laws. We need men. Specifically, men. That's the, what it calls for in verses 20 and 21. We need men in the church to teach God's people. God has called us to pray for leaders, and we need that kind of leadership here at City of Hope, even. Do you regularly pray for the Lord to raise up men? who are able to teach the body of Christ the ways of the Lord. I can testify to the heaviness of doing ministry, especially teaching, when there are not many hands to share the load. Moses was called in verse 20 to preach God and his ways to his people in general, And this leads to the fourth point. Moses was told to set apart some taught men to share the work with him. They are described uh, as, in, in verse 21, as morally upright. That is the actual sense of the Hebrew word translated able. And it goes, in, it goes hand in hand with its further explanation, men who fear God. These, these men 
are people who, who fear the Lord. And, and one definition of the fear of the Lord is people who hate evil. Um, they stand in awe of who God is and what he's done. These men were also from all the people. It goes on to, to describe them, uh, which not only highlights the obvious point that they were not from the Canaanites or the Amalekites, but from Israel, but they were from all over Israel, a good diverse group that could understand the diverse needs and challenges of the people. Uh, furthermore, they had to be faithful to the truth. They are described as, as trustworthy. They had to be men who could not be bought. They are described as those who hate bribes. We have heard it said, every man has his price. Every person has their breaking point. So many a man has fallen for money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Um, it makes the world go round. It doesn't. You know that. Even the Beatles knew, you can't buy me love. Uh, these men were to be moved, not by what they could buy, but by who... God had bought. For whom or for what do you break? We need to pray that God would raise up these kinds of godly men who are able to lead without compromise. Here at City of Hope and throughout the church all over the world. Fifth, and finally, Moses was told to place these men over designated groups, thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge, let them govern people at all times. So these trained men were to be kept constant and careful watch. It says at all times they were supposed to be watching over the Israelites as a whole. Constantly looking out and making sure that the disputes and the questions that arose on how to live and what to do were being dealt with. The church needs that kind of intense discipling. It needs, it needs to be discipled so that the church is that community, poised and ready, united, to impact the world around us. The more difficult cases they brought to Moses to decide. There's always a select group of people who are set apart, who study the Word of God, and are set apart. We call them pastors, but there's people who are set apart to study and to uh, be training others in leadership. Um, and that's what Moses was doing here. The difficult cases were brought to him to decide. The end result of this is, what, is that Moses would not be overworked. People would get their cases heard and resolved, and everyone would experience God's peace, his shalom. Now, obviously, there's differences now with the New Testament, with the coming of the Spirit. We don't need a, a Moses figure, so to speak, to go up the hill for us and speak to God and come down and give us a word from the Lord. You, you have a Bible, you can read. And the Spirit of God is given to every one of God's people. 
The Bible says the days of the new covenant will come and, and they won't say, know the Lord, because everyone will know the Lord from the least to the greatest. And the reason why is because the barrier of sin will be removed, because I will forgive their sin and remember it no more. The barrier between man and God has been taken away with the cross of Jesus Christ. And everyone in, in the priesthood of all believers we're all prophets, priests, and kings in Christ. And that's, that's a general truth found in the body of Christ. And right alongside of that, God has called men to lead that church as far as the teaching and the preaching and the proclamation of His Word. And there is a need for, for men to do that. There's a need for elders. There's a need for... God to raise up men and for us to be praying for that kind of shepherding leadership to be given to the church so that the church might experience the peace that it's meant to. And peace meaning the wholeness, the stability. And when this thing happens, this sort of thing happens, the community of God's people is now poised to be the light and salt, impacting the country, the nation, the surrounding nations with the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. There is a need for you, God's people, to be so poised. So you can first reflect in life, personally, and within the church, the compelling character of of Christ in your daily demeanor, decisions, and dedication to Jesus, and thereby be effective as the church within the world in discipling the nations, like in Jephro's case. Discipling the nations to hear the gospel to the point of coming to know, like Jephro did, with full conviction that the triune God revealed in Christ is the greatest and only God whose power to judge, save, and whose loving character are worthy of our deepest joys, our highest praise, and our total commitment. When this happens, you don't need to stress about civil magistrates, no matter who they may be. The real power is not in the White House, it's not in the Kremlin, it's not the Great Hall of the People or Buckingham Palace. The real power is in the church, united and on mission with Jesus for God's glory and His name to be made famous wherever there are people on this earth. At the very end of this chapter, Jephro is, the word is sent to his own country, the same word used for you being sent on a mission with and by God for his purposes. Go with him today for his kingdom. May God bless you and keep you.